Section three of the Wit of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wit of Women by Kate Sanborn. Chapter three From Anne Bradstreet to Mrs. Stowe. The same gratifying progress and improvement noticed in the wit of women of other lands is seen in studying the literary annals of our own country women. Think of Anne Bradstreet, Mercy Warren, and Tabitha Tinney, all extolled to the skies by their contemporaries. Mercy Warren was a satirist quite in the strain of juvenile but in cumbrous, artificial fashion. Honorable John Winthrop consulted her on the proposed suspension of trade with England in all but the necessaries of life, and she playfully gives a list of articles that would be included in that word. An inventory clear of all she needs Lamira offers here nor does she fear a rigid Cato's frown when she lays by the rich embroidered gown and modestly compounds for just enough perhaps some dozens of mere flighty stuff with lawns and lute strings blonde and mackling laces fringes and jewels fans and tweezer cases gay cloaks and hat of every shape and size scarves cardinals and ribbons of all dyes with ruffles stamped and aprils of timber tippets and handkerchiefs at least threescore with finest muslins that fair india boasts and a choice herbage from Chinesian coasts. Add feathers, furs, rich satin, and ducapes, and headdresses and pyramidal shapes, sideboards of plate and porcelain profuse, with fifty dittos that the ladies use. So weak Lamira and her wants so few, who can refuse? There but the sex do. Mrs. Sigourney, voluminous and mediocre, is amusing because so absolute destitute of humor, and her style, a feminine Johnsonese, is absurdly highfalutin and strained. This is the way in which she alludes to green apples. From the time of their first taking on orbicular shape, and when it might be supposed their hardness and acidity would repulse all save elephantine tusks and ostrich stomachs, they were the prey of roaming children. And in her poem, To a Shred of Linen, methinks I scan some idiosyncrasy that marks thee out a defunct pillowcase she preserved however a long list 
of the various solicitations sent her to furnish poems for special occasions and i think this shows that she possessed a sense of humor let me quote a few some verses were desired as an elegy on a pet canary accidentally drowned in a barrel of swine's food a poem requested on the dog star sirius to write an ode for the wedding of people in maine of whom i had never heard to punctuate a three-volume novel for an author who complained that the work of punctuating always brought on a pain in the small of his back asked to assist a servant man not very well able to read in getting his sunday school lessons and to write out all the answers for him clear through the book to save his time a lady whose husband expects to be absent on a journey for a month or two wishes i would write a poem to testify her joy at his return analogy on a young man one of the nine children of a judge of probate miss sedgwick in her letters occasionally showed a keen sense of humor as when speaking of a certain novel she said there is too much force for the subject it is as if a railroad should be built and a locomotive started to transport skeletons specimens and one bird of paradise mrs caroline gilman born in seventeen ninety four and still living author of recollections of a thousand matron etc will be represented by one playful poem which has a veritable new england flavor joshua's courtship a new england ballad stout joshua was a farmer's son and a pondering he sat one night when the fagots crackling burned and purred the tabby cat joshua was a well-grown youth as one might plainly see by the sleeves that vainly tried to reach his hands upon his knee his splay feet stood all parrot-toed in cowhide shoes arrayed and his hair seemed cut across his brow by rule and plummet laid in what was joshua pondering on with his widely staring eyes and his nostrils opening sensibly to ease his frequent sighs not often will a lover's lips the tender secret tell but out he spoke before he thought my gracious nancy bell his mother at her spinning wheel good woman stood and spun and what says she is come o'er you is earnest or is fun then joshua gave a cunning look half bashful and half sporting now what did father do says he 
when first he came a curtain. Why, George, the first thing that he did, with a knowing wink, said he, he dressed up of a Sunday night and cast sheep's eyes at me. Josh said no more, but straight went out and sought a butcher's pen, where twelve fat sheep for market bound had lately slaughtered been. He bargained with a lover's zeal, obtained the wished-for prize, and filled his pockets fore and aft with twice twelve bloody eyes. The next night was the happy time, when all New England sparks, dressed in their best, go out to court, as spruce and gay as larks. When floors are nicely sanded o'er, when tins and pewter shine, and milk pans by the kitchen wall display their dainty line. While the new ribbon decks the waist of many a waiting lass, who steals a conscious look of pride toward her answering glass. In pensive mood, said Nancy Bell, of Joshua, thought not she, but of a hearty sailor lad across the distant sea. Her arm upon the table rests, her hand supports her head. When Joshua enters with a scrape and somewhat bashful tread, no word he spoke, but down he sat and heaved a doleful sigh. Then at the table took his aim and rolled a glassy eye. Another and another flew with quick and strong rebound. They tumbled in poor Nancy's lap. They fell upon the ground. While Joshua smirked and sighed and smiled between each tender aim and still the cold and bloody balls in frightful quickness came until poor Nancy flew with screams to shun the amorous sport, and Joshua found to cast ship's eyes was not the way to court. Funny Forrester and Funny Fern both delighted the public with individual styles of writing, vastly successful when a new thing. When wanting a new dress and bonnet, as every woman will in the spring or in time, Funny Forrester wrote to Willis of the new mirror, an appeal which he called very clever, adroit, and fanciful. You know the shops in Broadway are very tempting this season. Such beautiful things. Well, you know, no, you don't know that. But you can guess what a delightful thing it would be to appear in one of those charming head adorning, complexion softening, hard features subduing Napolitans, 
with a little gossamere veil dropping daintily on the shoulder of one of those exquisite balzarines to be seen any day at stewart's and elsewhere well you know this you must know that shopkeepers have the impertinence to demand a trifling exchange for the things even of a lady and also that some people have a remarkably small purse and a remarkably small portion of the yellow root in that and now to bring the matter home i am one of that class i have the most beautiful little purse in the world but it is only kept for show i even find myself under the necessity of counterfeiting that is filling the void with tissue paper in lieu of banknotes preparatory to a shopping expedition well now to the point as bell and i snuggled down on the sofa this morning to read the new mirror by the way cousin bell is never obliged to put tissue paper in her purse it struck us that you would be a friend in need and give good counsel in this emergency bell however insisted on my not telling what i wanted the money for she even thought that i had better intimate orphanage extreme suffering from the bursting of some speculative bubble illness etc but did i not know you better have i read the new mirror so much to say nothing of the graceful things coined under a bridge and a thousand other pages flung from the inner heart and not learned who has an eye for everything pretty not so stupid cousin bell no no and to the point maybe you of the new mirror pay for acceptable articles maybe not comprenez-vous oh i do hope that the beautiful balzarine like bells will not be gone before another saturday you will not forget to answer me in the next mirror but pray my dear editor let it be done very cautiously for bell would pout all day if she should know what i have written till saturday your anxiously waiting friend fanny forrester such a note received by an editor of his generation would promptly fall into the waste basket but willis was captivated and answered well we give in on condition that you are under twenty-five and that you will wear a rose recognizably in your bodice the first time you appear in broadway with the hat and balzarine we will pay the bills write us thereafter a sketch of bell and yourself as cleverly done as this letter and you may snuggle down on the sofa and consider us paid and the public charmed with you this style of ingratiating oneself with an editor is as much a bygone as an alliterative pen name 
Fanny Fern, Sarah Willis Barton, also established a style of her own, a new kind of composition, short, pointed paragraphs, without beginning and without end, one clear ringing note, and then silence. Her talent for humorous composition showed itself in her essays at school. I'll give a bit from her suggestions on arithmetic after cramming for an examination. Every incident, every object of sight seemed to produce an arithmetical result. I once saw a poor wretch evidently intoxicated, thought I, that man has overcome three scruples, to say the least, for three scruples make one drum. Even the Sabbath was no day of rest for me. The psalms, prayers, and sermons were all translated by me into the language of arithmetic. A good man spoke very feelingly upon the manner in which our cares and perplexities were multiplied by riches. Muttered I, that, sir, depends upon whether the multiplier is a fraction or whole number, for if it be a fraction, it makes the product less. And when another lamenting the various divisions of the church, pathetically exclaimed, and how shall we unite these several denominations in one? Why, reduce them to a common denominator, exclaimed I, half aloud, wondering at his ignorance. And when an admiring swain protested his warm interest, he brought only one word that chimed with my train of thought. Interest, exclaimed I, starting from my reverie. What percent, sir? Ma'am, exclaimed my attendant in the greatest possible amazement. How much percent, sir? said I, repeating my question. His reply was lost on my ear save. Madam, at any rate, do not trifle with my feelings. At any rate, did you say? Then take six percent. That is the easiest to calculate. Her style, too, has gone out of fashion, but in its day it was thought very amusing. Mrs. Stowe needs no introduction, and she is another of those from whom we quote little, because she could contribute so much, and one does not know where to choose. Her Sam Lawson is perhaps the most familiar of her odd characters and talkers. Sam Lawson's Sayings Well, Sam, what did you think of the sermon? said Uncle Bill. Well, said Sam, leaning over the fire with his long, bony hands, alternately raised to catch the warmth, and then dropped with an utter laxness, when the warmth became too pronounced. Parson Simpson's a smart man, but I tell ye, it's kind of discouraging. Why, he said, our state and condition by nature was just like this. We were clear down in a well fifty feet deep, 
and the sides all round nothing but clear ice where we were under immediate obligations to get out cause we were free voluntary agents but nobody ever had got out and nobody would unless the lord reached down and took him and whether he would or not nobody could tell it was all sovereignty he said there weren't one in a hundred not one in a thousand not one in ten thousand that would be saved lordy massy says i to myself if that's so there's any of em welcome to my chance and so i kind of rise up and come out cause i'd got a pretty long walk home and i wanted to go round by south pond and inquire about aunt sally morse's toothache this ere miss sphyxy smith a rich old gal and mazin smart to work he began tell you she holds all she gets old soul he told me a story about her that was a pretty good one what was it said my grandmother well you see you remember old parson jadutham candle that lives up in stony town he lost his wife a year ago last thanksgiving and he thought twere about time he had another so he comes down and consults our parson lothrop says he i want a good smart neat economical woman with a good property i don't care nothing about her being handsome in fact i ain't particular about anything else says he well person lothrop says he i think if that's the case i know just the woman to suit you she owns a clear handsome property and she's neat and economical but she's no beauty oh beauty is nothing to me says parson kendall and so he took the direction well one day he hitched up his old one-horse shay and kind of brushed up and started off a curtain well the person come to the house and he wore tickled to pieces with looks o things outside cause the house is all well shingled and painted and there ain't a picket loose nor nail wanting nowhere this here's the woman for me says parson kendall so he goes up and raps hard on the front door with his whip handled well you see miss sphyxy she wore just going out to help get in her hay she had on a pair of clopping cowhide boots and a pitchfork in her hand just going out when she heard rap so she come just as she was to the front door now you know parson kendall's a little midget of a man but he stood there on the step kind of smiling and genteel licking his lips and looking so ag agreeable well the front door kind of stuck 
front doors generally do you know cause they ain't opened very often and mrs fixie she had to pull and haul and put to all her strength and finally it come open with a bang and she peered to the parson pitchfork and all sort of frowning like what do you want says she for you see miss sphyxie ain't no ways tender to the man i want to see miss asphyxia smith says he very civil thinking she wore the higher gal i'm miss asphyxia smith says she what do you want of me parson candle he just took one good look on her from top to toe nothing says he and turned right round and went down the steps like lightning years ago mrs stowe published some capital stories of new england life which were collected in a little volume called the mayflower a book which is now seldom seen and almost unknown to the present generation from this i take her night in a canal boat extremely effective when read with enthusiasm and proper variety of tone i quote it as a boon for the boys and girls who are often looking for something funny to read aloud the canal boat by harriet beecher stowe of all the ways of travelling which obtain among our locomotive nation this sad vehicle the canal boat is the most absolutely prosaic and inglorious there is something picturesque nay almost sublime in the lordly march of your well-built high-bred steamboat go take your stand on some overhanging bluff where the blue ohio winds its thread of silver or the sturdy mississippi tears its path through unbroken forests and it will do your heart good to see the gallant boat walking the waters with unbroken and powerful tread and like some fabled monster of the wave breathing fire and making the shores resound with its deep respirations then there is something mysterious even awful in the power of steam see it curling up against a blue sky some rosy morning graceful floating intangible and to all appearance the softest and gentlest of all spiritual things and then think that it is this very spirit that keeps all the world alive and hot with motion think how excellent a servant it is doing all sorts of gigantic works like the genii of old and yet if you let sleep the talisman only for a moment what terrible advantage it will take of you and you will confess that steam has some claims both to the beautiful and the terrible for our own part when we are down among the machinery of a steamboat in full play 
we conduct ourselves very reverently for we consider it as a very serious neighborhood and every time the steam whizzes with such red-hot determination from the scape valve we start as if some of the spirits were after us but in a canal boat there is no power no mystery no danger one cannot blow up one cannot be drowned unless by some special effort one sees clearly all there is in the case a horse a rope and a muddy strip of water and that is all did you ever try it reader if not take an imaginary trip with us just for experiment there is the boat exclaims a passenger in the omnibus as we are rolling down from the pittsburgh mansion house to the canal where exclaim a dozen of voices and forthwith a dozen heads go out of the window why down there under that bridge don't you see those lights what that little thing exclaims an inexperienced traveller dear me we can't have of us get into it we indeed says some old hand in the business i think you find it will hold us and a dozen more loads like us impossible say some you see say the initiated and as soon as you get out you do see and here too what seems like a general breaking loose from the tower of babel amid a perfect hailstorm of trunks boxes valises carpet bags and every describable and indescribable form of what a westerner calls plunder that's my trunk barks out a big round man that's my handbox screams a heart-stricken old lady in terror for her immaculate sunday caps where is my little red box i had two carpet bags and a my trunk had a scarl hallo where are you going with that portmanteau husband husband do see after the large basket and the little hair trunk oh and the baby's little chair go below go below for mercy's sake my dear i'll see to the baggage at last the feminine part of creation perceiving that in this particular instance they gain nothing by public speaking are content to be led quietly under hatches and amusing is the look of dismay which each newcomer gives to the confined quarters that present themselves those who were so ignorant of the power of compression as to suppose the boat scarce large enough to contain them and theirs find with dismay a respectable colony of old ladies babies mothers big baskets and carpet bags already established mercy on us says one after surveying the little room 
about ten feet long and six feet high. Where are we all to sleep tonight? Oh, me? What a sight of children, says a young lady in a despairing tone. Pooh, says an initiated traveler. Children, scarce any here. Let's see. One, the woman in the corner. Two, that child with the bread and butter. Three, and then there's that other woman with two. Really, it's quite moderate for a canal boat. However, we can't tell till they have all come. Oh, for mercy's sake, you don't say there are any more coming, exclaimed two or three in a breath. They can't come. There is not room, notwithstanding the impressive utterance of this sentence. The contrary is immediately demonstrated by the appearance of a very corpulent elderly lady with three well-grown daughters, who come down looking about them most complacently, entirely regardless of the unchristian looks of the companion. What a mercy is that fat people are always good-natured. After this follows an indiscriminate raining down of all shapes, sizes, sexes, and ages, men, women, children, babies, and nurses. The state of feeling becomes perfectly desperate. Darkness gathers on all faces. We shall be smothered. We shall be crowded to death. We can't stay here, are heard faintly from one and another. And yet, though the boat grows no wider, the walls no higher, they do live, and do stay there, in spite of repeated protestations to the contrary. Truly, as some sleek says, there is a sight of wear in human nature. But meanwhile, the children grow sleepy, and divers interesting little duets and trios arise from one part or another of the cabin. Hush, Johnny, be a good boy, says a pale nursing mamma to a great bristling white-headed phenomenon who is kicking very much at large in her lap. I won't be a good boy neither, responds Johnny with interesting explicitness. I want to go to bed. And so and Johnny makes up a mouth as big as a teacup and roars with good courage. And his mamma asks him if he ever saw Papa Dusso and tells him that he is mamma's dear, good little boy and must not make a noise with various observations of the kind which are so strikingly efficacious in such cases meanwhile the domestic concert in other quarters proceeds with vigor mamma i'm tired bawls a child where's the baby's nightgown calls a nurse do take peter up in your lap and keep him still pray get out some biscuits to stop their mouth meanwhile sundry babies strike in conspirito as the music books have it and execute various flourishes the disconsolate mothers sigh 
and look as if all was over with them and the young ladies appear extremely disgusted and wonder what business women have to be traveling round with children to these troubles succeeds the turning out scene when the whole caravan is ejected into the gentleman's cabin that the beds may be made the red curtains are put down and a solemn silence all the last mysterious preparations begin at length it is announced that all is ready forthwith the whole company rush back and find the walls embellished by a series of little shelves about a foot wide each furnished with a mattress and bedding and hooked to the ceiling by a very suspiciously slender cord direful are the ruminations and exclamations of inexperienced travellers particularly young ones as they eye these very equivocal accommodations what sleep up there i won't sleep on one of those top shelves i know the cords will certainly break the chambermaid here takes up the conversation and solemnly assures them that such an accident is not to be brought off at all that it is a natural impossibility a thing that could not happen without an actual miracle and since it becomes increasingly evident that thirty ladies cannot all sleep on the lowest shelf there is some effort made to exercise faith in this doctrine nevertheless all look on their neighbors with fear and trembling and when the stout lady talks of taking a shelf she is most urgently pressed to change places with her alarmed neighbor below points of location being after a while adjusted comes the last struggle everybody wants to take off a bonnet or look for a shawl to find a cloak or get a carpet bag and all set about it with such zeal that nothing can be done ma'am you're on my foot says one will you please to move ma'am says somebody who is gasping and struggling behind you move you echo indeed i should be very glad to but i don't see much prospect of it chambermaid calls a lady who is struggling among a heap of carpet bags and children at one end of the cabin ma'am echoes the poor chambermaid who is wedged fast in a similar situation at the other where's my cloak chambermaid i'd find it ma'am if i could move chambermaid my basket chambermaid my parcel chambermaid my carpet bag mamma they push me so hush child crawl under there and lie still till i can undress you at last however the various distresses are over the babies sink to sleep and even that much enduring being 
the chambermaid seeks out some corner for repose tired and drowsy you are just sinking into a doze when bang goes the boat against the sides of a lock ropes scrape men run and shout and up fly the heads of all the top shelf fits who are generally the more juvenile and airy part of the company what's that what's that flies from mouth to mouth and forthwith they proceed to awaken their respective relation mother aunt hannah do wake up what is this awful noise oh only a lock pray be still groan out the sleepy members from below a lock exclaimed the vivacious creatures ever on the alert for information and what is a lock pray don't you know what a lock is you silly creatures do lie down and go to sleep but say there ain't any danger in a lock is there respond the querists danger exclaims a deaf old lady poking up her head what's the matter there ain't nothing burst has there no 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 exclaim the provoked and despairing opposition party who find that there is no such thing as going to sleep till they have made the old lady below and the young ladies above understand exactly the philosophy of a lock after a while the conversation again subsides again all is still you hear only the trampling of horses and the rippling of the rope in the water and sleep again is stealing over you you doze you dream and all of a sudden you are startled by a cry chambermaid wake up the lady that wants to be set ashore up jumps chambermaid and up jump the lady and two children and forthwith form a committee of inquire as to ways and means where's my bonnet says the lady half awake and fumbling among the various articles of that name i thought i hung it up behind the door can't you find it says the poor chambermaid yawning and rubbing her eyes oh yes here it is says the lady and then the cloak the shawl the gloves the shoes receive each a separate discussion at last all seems ready and they begin to move off when lo peter's cap is missing now where can it be soliloquizes the lady i put it right here by the table leg maybe it got into some of the berth at this suggestion the chambermaid takes the candle and goes round deliberately to every berth poking the light directly in the face of every sleeper here it is she exclaims pulling at something black under one pillow no indeed those are my shoes says the vexed sleeper maybe it's here she resumes darting upon something dark in another berth no that's my bag responds the occupant the chambermaid then proceeds to turn over all the children on the floor 
to see if it is not under them in the course of which process they are most agreeably waked up and enlivened and when everybody is broad awake and most uncharitably wishing the cap and period too at the bottom of the canal the good lady exclaims well if this isn't lucky here i had it safe in my basket all the time and she departed amid the what shall i say execrations of the whole company ladies though they be well after this follows a hushing up and wiping up among the juvenile population and a series of remarks commences from the various shelves of a very edifying and instructive tendency one says that the woman did not seem to know where anything was another says that she has waked them all up a third adds that she has waked up all the children too and the elderly ladies making moral reflections on the importance of putting your things where you can find them being always ready which observations being delivered in an exceedingly doleful and drowsy tone form a sort of sub bass to the lively chattering of the upper shelfits who declare that they feel quite awake that they don't think they shall go to sleep again to-night and scarce over everything in creation until you heartily wish you were enough related to them to give them a scolding at last however voice after voice drops off you fall into a most refreshing slumber it seems to you that you sleep about a quarter of an hour when the chambermaid pulls you by the sleeve will you please to get up ma'am we want to make the beds you start and stare sure enough the night is gone so much for sleeping on board canal boats let us not enumerate the manifold perplexities of the morning toilet in a place where every lady realizes most forcibly the condition of the old woman who lived under a broom all she wanted was elbow room let us not tell how one glass is made to answer for thirty fair faces one ewer and vase for thirty lavations and tell not in gath one towel for a company let us not intimate how ladies shoes have in a night clandestinely slid into the gentleman's cabin and gentlemen's boots elbowed or rather towed their way among ladies gear nor recites the exclamations after runaway property that are heard i can't find nothing of johnny's shoe here's a shoe in the water pitcher is this it my side combs are gone exclaims a nymph with dishevelled curls massy do look at my bonnet exclaims an old lady elevating an article crushed into as many angles as there are pieces in a mince pie i never did sleep so much together in my life echoes a poor little french lady 
whom despair has driven into talking english but our shortening paper warns us not to prolong our catalogue of distresses beyond reasonable bounds and therefore we will close with advising all our friends who intend to try this way of travelling for pleasure to take a good stock both of patience and clean towels with them for a thing that they will find abundant need for both end of section three